All right, thanks guys, let's pull it in. Hey, all this school year, we have been going through the writings of John. John is this amazing follower of Jesus, the last of the living apostles at the time he wrote the writings of his that you'll find in the New Testament. And these last several weeks, we've been going through 1 John, which is not to be confused with the gospel, but a letter he wrote because people were messing his gospel up. It is really easy. Would you agree to mess the Bible up? to take it out of context, to confuse things, to draw wrong conclusions that weren't intended, and it was no different in their day too. And John was witnessing this, and he was counting down the days going, man, I'm like 192 or something like that, and I don't got long for this world anymore. And he writes this letter to these early Christians trying to help them understand who truly are people of God. He'll use all different kinds of language for this. He'll call them people of light, people of life, people who have been born from above, people who are of the Spirit. could use a thousand terms. That doesn't matter. He's writing to help them figure out who really are people of God. And he's writing in like, well, now that I got the template, I can sit in judgment over everyone else and critique, are you of God? Are you not of God? Are you of God? Kind of like hold yourself over them. That would be to take it off the rails. He writes this to them for a very different reason. And it's because there are a lot of voices out there. Would you agree? And a lot of times it can get really hard to know who should I be listening to? Especially when on the surface a lot of things sound really, really good. And so he writes this letter to help them navigate the voices, the voices about God, the voices about Jesus, the voices about what the spiritual life looks like, and the voices commenting on what it really looks like to have a God-like kind of life. He writes this to them to help them navigate it. And by extension, from being able to identify that, to do a little bit of a self-check as well. Am I a person of God? Am I living like a person of God? And if I realize as I'm going through his letter that at some point I am not, well, that's okay. But seek God in that pivot and change in such a way that you become characteristic of a person of God, not a person of, as John will call them, lies or darkness or death. And that's what this whole thing is about. Now, today we're going to pick up at the end. We are coming in for a landing. The seatbelt sign has been turned on. Put your tray tables up. Because we have got this Sunday and next Sunday, and I'd like you to follow along with me in 1 John chapter 5. Now, I'm going to put this on the screen and try to break this down so you can follow along, but feel free to follow with me in your own device if you'd like. 1 John chapter 5. We're doing 12 verses today, verses 1 through 12 of this amazing letter. Let's jump in, see what John has to say. Here's where he starts. In chapter 5, 
He writes this, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the birther loves the one being born from him. You following that a, a, a little bit? It's kind of like wooden language, but hey, that's how John rolls. That's how John talks. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the one who gives spiritual birth, by extension, loves the one who has been birthed. You following, right? If you love the one bringing someone into the world, then you should love the one who they brought into the world. That is the basic gist. He goes on, he says, now this is how you know that you love the children of God. Well, you know that you love the children of God by loving God and by obeying his commands. In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands, that if you say you love God, if you do love God, then you do the things that bring God delight. You do the things that please him. You do the things that rub him the right way. Because that's what we do when we're in relationships with people. If we're in relationships with people that we love, we seek to please them and bring them delight and do the things that serve them and help them and lift them up. It is no less true with God. And so, in fact, this is love for God to keep his commands and his commands are not burdensome. Now, all of this, John has said before. Maybe you're new with us today and maybe this is new ground for you, but let me rewind a little bit because for the last several weeks going through this letter, we have seen John say this over and over again. He keeps coming back to these central points that the central thing to do is to believe that Jesus is the Christ and if you do, you are someone born of God. The very essence of having faith like that in Christ is, is, is evidence that God's spirit is alive in you and you are being remade, renewed, reborn in him. And that naturally produces love. Love for God and love for other people. And out of that love comes a desire to obey. So you have these three things. Believe in the Christ. It creates love. And the outcropping of love is obedience. Now, I think John has said this every way from Sunday for the last several weeks. But it is worth sinking your teeth into. Because this is a big book with so much nuance, so many insights, so many things to say. And would you agree that it can be very easy to get lost in the trees and miss the forest? And sometimes it's helpful to simply step back and go, what does this boil down to? This is what John is getting after. Here's what it boils down to, he says, to be a person of God, to believe that Jesus is the Christ, to live in that love that God births in you because of him, and to seek to obey God in that love. 
You get those three things done, you're going to have a pretty rock-solid spiritual life, let me tell you. And that's what John is about. And he says his commands are not burdensome, which I kind of find funny because would you agree that sometimes they do feel quite burdensome, that it can be taxing. And there's no business trying to deny that because a lot of times it does feel taxing. It does seem hard. But John wants you to think a different way. He goes, it shouldn't be taxing because if God is changing you from the inside out, then a desire to obey his commands is automatically going to be welling up within you. Have you ever had these moments where it's like, why, why do you want to come to church on a Sunday? Don't you know it's raining out and that you could be sleeping right now or having brunch? Aren't there so many people who take a time like this to do all kinds of infinitely more enjoyable things? Go to the cabin. Go to the lake. Get the to-do list done. I know that doesn't sound enjoyable, but it really kind of is because then it's not burning you anymore. And yet you choose to get up and come to a place like this. Why? Why? Well, I can tell you why. Because you want to. Now, I know some of you are going, no, I have to make myself up, get up and go, right? And yeah, I know that occasionally that's true, but I also know this. Willpower doesn't last. Would you agree in your life experience that willpower is a depleting resource? It will only take you so far. And at some point, something has to change inside where it's not something you're simply forcing yourself to do, but that you want to do. And isn't it fair to say that on any given Sunday, you're here because you want to be at some level? The command is not burdensome. It's not taxing for you anymore. Because God is at work in your heart changing things. And how true then is this for every single other command that God invites us into? That God is looking to orchestrate a change of heart within us so that out of sheer love, we're like, God, I want to serve you. God, I want to obey you. God, I want to do it your way. This is what John is getting at, and it is byproduct of what it means to be born again. Are you with me? Now, he goes on, and he says this. For everything born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Are you seeing a recurring word in this verse right here? John now lays a new element on this foundational teaching of belief, of love, and obedience 
that he's been drilling into our heads for five chapters. Now he says, everything born of God overcomes the world. Now, if you look in various translations, you're going to find this put differently. The NIV, for example, will say, for every one born of God overcomes the world. I'm simply asking you to extend some trust to me that a more literal reading is probably everything. And here's my best guess at why it words this way. Because certainly people who are born of God would be included in everything. Would you agree people are a part of everything? But it's more than that. It's more than just you. It is the work and action that you produce out of love and obedience for God that everything you do as a result of being someone born of God Everything you do that's motivated and, and, and carried out in that love and obedience to him, it overcomes the world. The world is a big place. Would you agree? The world is a powerful place. Would you agree? Do you ever feel powerless against the forces of the world? Do you ever see things that just aren't right? That you know hurt people? That as Jesus will say, steal and kill and destroy not only people's lives, but their joy and their contentment, their relationships and their well-being. Do you ever see these things and pray for change? You wish for change. You wish it could be different. Maybe not even at a cosmic scale, but maybe just right there in your home, maybe right there in your life, maybe right there in the most specific kind of way, but you feel powerless against it. And you throw yourselves on the rocks of this. And it doesn't feel like it makes any difference. You feel like it's futile pointless, and that all your effort and energy is in vain. Have you ever prayed for someone and nothing ever changes? Have you ever poured into someone and nothing ever changes? Have you ever struggled and wrestled and resisted and it doesn't feel like internally it changes? Have you thrown yourself out there and tried to do everything right with a fool's hope to try to make it better? And nothing ever changes. If you're sitting in that place today, welcome to being human. You're sitting in the place that human beings have sat for millennia. But John writes, everything born of God overcomes the world. He invites you to trust him that everything you do in accordance with God's will and as an outcropping of God's spirit, the world doesn't stand a chance against it. I love how Paul will put it. That God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That in all things, God works for the good of those who love him the things that look like failure, the things that look futile, the things that look like they have lost, 
God invites you to believe that in there, somehow, in some way, God will overcome the world. And Jesus did just that. Jesus was born of God. Jesus loved God. Jesus obeyed God. And everything Jesus did has worked the power of overcoming the darkness of this world, even when it looked futile, even when it looked like he failed, even when he was strung up dying. Every single bit has overcome the world. And John says, so it will be true of you. That just like Jesus, everything God is birthing in you, everything you do in that, man, that'll overcome. That's good news, isn't it? Take heart if you're here today, throwing yourself against the rocks, living in despondency and despair, thinking it'll never get better. Trust God's promise. God will work in it. Welcome to the outlandish promises called the Christian faith. He goes on. And he says, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, the one who was born of God, the one who loved God, the one who obeyed God, the one who overcame the world. This is the one, Jesus Christ, who came by water and blood. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. So just in case we're missing it, let's recap it. He says Jesus came by water and blood. Not just by water, but by water and blood. And the spirit testifies to it too, and the three are in agreement. And if you are utterly confused right now, going, what are you talking about, man? (laughs) You are not alone Because for centuries, people have wrestled with the exact same thing. Now, maybe you're looking at this, and those of you who kind of have like that church mooring, maybe you're sniffing out like Trinitarian kind of stuff. There's like, there's like three in there. I see like, like spirit. I see Jesus. But then like, like it gets weird because like, what do you do with water? God is water. The father is water. I don't know how to make sense of that. Let me tell you what I think is going on. From the beginning, John has been encouraging Christians not to be led astray by people who are claiming to be full of the Spirit. There are many voices in the world today who claim to be voices of God to speak on God's behalf and to speak his truth and his wisdom into the world. And in John's day, there were people claiming to be filled with the spirit of God, seeking to bring truth and wisdom to these people that John knew to whom he was writing these letters. They were claiming to be full of the spirit. Well, let me tell you, they were full of something. But in essence, they were hopped up 
on their own ideas, their own ego, and their own version of truth that, that, they, thought, that they thought fit more rightly into the world today. They were rewriting history. They were rewriting the story. They were reinterpreting Jesus. They were starting to say all kinds of things. And in the process, they were starting to deny, shall we say, the embarrassing sides of Jesus, the things that just don't look powerful, godly, and spiritual things, like weakness, things like vulnerability, things like suffering, things like hunger and thirst, things like temptation, things like sorrow, things like death, the things that make us mortal, the things that make us frail, the things that make us weak. How can we follow someone like that? How can we say that God is weak? How can we throw our lot in with someone who is nailed up on a cross that doesn't feel very godlike to me? And so hopped up on what they were claiming to be the Spirit. They were picturing a different kind of Jesus. And John is make no mistake. Jesus came by water, but Jesus came by blood. At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus was baptized in water and the power of God, the spirit of God came upon him. He was spiritual. From his very conception, Jesus, uh, the spirit of God came upon his mother and Jesus was born in power of the spirit symbolized by water throughout John's gospel. I tell you, anyone who isn't born of water and the Spirit can't see the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. But Jesus wasn't just of spirit. Jesus was of flesh and blood too. And you can't have one without the other. And John wants his listeners to know that the minute you start undermining the humanity the frailty, the weakness of Jesus and what Jesus did in blood and sweat and guts, you are no longer following the true Jesus at all. And the irony is the Spirit of God testifies to that very reality. Now, it says that the three testify and they are in agreement and we accept this testimony of John, of the disciples who went before him. But God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to, uh, whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. John's point is basically this. We told you this. We tried to impress it on you. We've seen it. And we're inviting you to believe us. And many of you have. 
but God himself is the one who has given testimony to it. This isn't just human testimony, it's God's testimony. And just because some other people come along who speak more convincingly, who capture your heart, who win you over with the right stories, who get in your soul and inspire you, and if any given moment that goes against the testimony of Jesus himself, you're making God out to be a liar. You got to decide who you're going to follow. Now let's do a couple flashbacks in this passage. The first is this. John wrote, this is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out his commands. Now, there are a lot of people that I meet that love people more than God. They may believe in God, but they don't really love him. And if they're going to be honest about it, they're like, I don't really know him. I'm kind of afraid of him. He makes me nervous. I feel scrutinized around him. I don't think he can have a friend like me. Or any number of other things that the reality is they tend to love people more than God because God is less of a friend and more of a concept, philosophy, or idea. And it's hard to fall in love with an idea. Can you agree? You can love what it's about, but it's hard to love it. But then I meet other people. And in my experience, these tend to be the people who come to churches on Sunday mornings. They tend to love God more than people. They have been so impacted by God, have come to know him so well, have fallen in love with him to such a degree that that kind of envelops everything. And people, well, they kind of get in the way. People are to be dealt with, to be tolerated. People are frustrating. People are annoying. Would you agree? One of the greatest theological truths I ever heard at the seminary was this, people are no damn good. <laughs> and you know it to be true. Ask yourself today, who do you love more, people or God? There's no judgment in this question. There really isn't. I just encourage you, do an honest assessment on it. Are you someone who tends to love people more or are you someone who tends to love God more? Now, whichever side you fall on, it's never meant to be a, you know, less filling, tastes great kind of debate. It's always supposed to be a both and, but I think each and every one of us gravitate a certain way. And I want to give an encouragement to you today. If you are someone who tends, well, to love God more than people, if you are someone who struggles to love people, how do you do it? John says do it this way. 
by loving God and obeying his commands. Because God's commands are designed to orient you to people. And to be someone who manifests what the love of God is like with people. So if you're struggling to love people, be it in general or be it that person who is on your mind right now, you know who I mean. Let me encourage you to try this. Love God by doing what he says. God, you love this person. So how have you told me to love this person and try it? Put it into action and see if by doing that, your capacity for love for a human being might grow as well. Now, I got another flashback for you. Remember when he said this, his commands are not burdensome for everything born of God overcomes the world and that's the victory that we have is in that. You know, it can be easy to just feel the weight of doing this. God, I know you've called me to love her, but I ain't feeling it today. God, I know you've called me to love them, but I really can't stand them, especially today. I know he says they're not burdensome, but let's be honest, because if we can't be honest, what are we doing here? They really often are. You know, oftentimes I think the struggle to obey God's commands, the burden of it, it's motivated out of fear. Fear that by doing this, I am going to have to give up something or lose something precious to me, important to me, that brings me delight, or that by doing this, it's going to cost me in some kind of way that I don't want to deal with. Let me tell you today, that is the world flexing. And what I have come to see is that the world's bark is worse than its bite. Because when you come to realize that what God is offering, the life and joy that he is offering is so infinitely better by far than what the fear is causing you to cling on to or to avoid, it changes everything. It changes the perspective on everything going, wait a minute, wait a minute. This isn't that big a deal to give up that for this? No, no, the burden is taken away when you can start to see what God is offering in return. And to finish today, John writes, And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. 
whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Let's remember this from all John's writings. What's true of God is true of Jesus. And what's true of Jesus is true of God. So that if you want God, you have Jesus. And if you have Jesus, you have God. Jesus is unequivocal about that fact. Now, I know a lot of people who believe in God but don't believe in Jesus. I know people who say they love God but they don't love Jesus. And I get that. But what John is writing is that when the time comes, that when you come actually face to face with Jesus and you realize that that is God, to reject the very God who is before your face and say that you still love him, well, it's contradictory from the bottom to the top because I can't say that I love you if I don't actually love you. So many times we create a fantasy about a person that we think we love. Ideas about what they're like, what a relationship would be like with them. But how many times are we guilty of falling in love more with our ideal or imagination or fantasy of what that relationship should be than when we actually meet the person face to face? Jesus is God's way of saying, come and meet me face to face. And whatever you think about God, if you don't love it in Jesus, well, John is saying, then you don't really love and know who God really is. Because you can't have God without him. That's not popular. John goes, I know. But that's the way it is. Because John has never been interested in being popular. What he's been interested in is sharing the truth about what God is like who he actually is. So he writes, whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. And laced on this statement, I believe, is an invitation. That if you're seeking life, hungering for God, searching for spiritual truth, God is offering that in Christ. And he's making the invitation to plant your feet and your perspective firmly in him. Because he says that's where you're going to find it. That's where John leaves us off today. Take what you need out of that and let God work something with that in you. Let's pray. Lord God, we...
we come to a place like this because at some level we want to know you. We trust that you're good. We hope that you're good. We want you in our life. Your power. Your help. Your salvation. Some of us come here today, God, gathering with you is with a friend. Increasing our hearts a capacity for love. A love for you as you've loved us and a love for the people you love as well. Draw us to obedience, God. Lord, though it tax us, remove the burden and replace it with delight. Change us from the inside out. Work within us, God. To seek you, to want your way, delight in you. Lord God, among all the prevailing voices, help us to look to your son, to those who know him best. When we find ourselves in places of doubt, wondering, questioning, draw us back. Draw us back into the central truths of who you are and what you've done and the life you offer. Lord, we want to be people of light, people of life, people born from above. We're throwing ourselves in your hands and we know they're big and they're strong. Do your work in us. We pray. And anytime we doubt it, may we remember you are good. You are so good. We can trust you because you are good. And your mercy endures forever. Amen. Yeah, let's rise and sing.